0: From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox Talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson.
1: Thanks, Rob, and welcome to a new episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's a midweek show as this episode is released on Thursday, June sixteenth, two 2022. After a terrible homestand, The Chicago White Sox needed to stack wins and quickly before this season collapses on them a trip to Detroit could be promising but with the amount of injuries that continue to stack up for the White Sox and the bullpen being gassed on paper it wasn't going to be an easy series for the White Sox the offense would have to pull through well the good news the offense did pull through in a big way scoring a total of 27 runs 13 of those came in the series finale as they beat Detroit 13-0, and they got a much-needed sweep, and it puts the White Sox one game below 500 at 30-31. and 31. But before you get too happy, the White Sox now visit the Houston Astros, a place they haven't won at since May of 2019. We got a lot to discuss, so let's get started. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. This series in Detroit was much needed for the White Sox.
2: Sure was. And given the way it started with Lance Lynn uh, getting beat up a little bit over the middle of the plate, it very well could have been a continuation of the previous series. And even, you know, even if they won two of three, it could have well been, you know, kind of rocky and, and not very confidence boosting but instead you know the the White Sox endured uh Lynn's roughest uh patch like the, you know as he was knocking the rust off over the first uh two innings and everything smoothed out from there Detroit is bad <laughs> Detroit's having problems but uh the White Sox gave them problems like they they beat them like over the course of the three games they just distanced themselves with their talent uh you know over basically it seemed like every successive inning so that was nice to see
1: yeah, Detroit had three position players pitch in the, the final game of the series. How would you have done that headline? Because usually when a position player pitches in a blowout, the White Sox lose. We always reference like Lurie Garcia pitched or Josh Harrison pitched. What would that headline been if the White Sox, or if you were covering it from a Tigers perspective, three position
2: players pitching? It would have been, I would have named all three. <laughs> just yeah, just to really you know let it sink in, because I, I had to do that with, uh, um, was it Larry and Alexi when they pitched in the same game? Okay, yeah, that was a while ago. Yeah, so I but I named them both, so yeah, just itemizing.
1: I'm a bit disappointed in the way that Cody Clemens threw. Like you're the son yeah. of Roger Clemens, I would think you would be trying at least instead of these. Lobs. That's what I'm seeing from position players across Major League Baseball. They're just throwing these like forty to fifty mile per hour lobs to the plate, hoping that no one gets any uh launch angle on these particular pitches or they beat him into the ground. Uh but I was I was a bit disappointed. I thought he would actually, you know, try throwing the baseball to home plate.
2: Yeah, I, I imagine it's kind of like uh he went as far away from it as possible because if he tried his best and still like, you know, was throwing topping out 85 or something like that, he would have said like, Oh, that's you call yourself rockets kid. He's like, "Ah, but, but when he's you know throwing 40, he's like, Oh, I wasn't trying. I was just goofing around. I can do better, but I didn't, I didn't want to.
1: It is odd though, because this is major league baseball. Like I get it. If it's double A or triple A and it's like, let's just get this game over. But maybe major league baseball needs a mercy rule. (laughs) to prevent this type of situation. I I know this is going to be the talk of the town in Detroit about what happened on Wednesday afternoon that three position players had to pitch. And all the Detroit Tigers beat reporters made it known that the Tigers had a 25-minute players-only meeting after the game and the kind of barred media. So the media had to sit outside the locker room and we were getting this notification from the Tigers beat Regarding as far as his meeting, so things are not great in Detroit, as Jim mentioned, and, and the White Sox have compounded their problems. The Detroit Tigers offensively are having one of the worst first halves in Major League Baseball history, the worst since integration. Uh, so it's, that's definitely the worst in our lifetime, Jim, that we are seeing from this Tigers offense. So not as well Uh, in Detroit right now but for the White Sox they took advantage of it which is great to see because they have not been taking advantage of these opportunities and someone that did take advantage of the opportunity especially Wednesday afternoon is Yohan Makata. Before Wednesday's game Jim Mm -hmm. I went on Twitter because his season's been bugging me like I get it you are hurt and oblique injuries we talked about it when he suffered the oblique injury this is something that everyone's going to have to pay close attention to because oblique injuries can be nagging. And we, for example, Ryan Braun with the Milwaukee Brewers, it would be reoccurring for him ever since like from 2014, when he first suffered it all the way until the season, he retired in 2020 and Mikata was hitting terribly. And looking at baseball savant, I, my hypothesis was very similar to 2021 where when we recapped his season, we pointed out that Yohan Makata is not driving the fastball, not like he did in 2019 or 2020. Huge drop off from Yohan Mikata in the success against high velocity pitches, greater than 94 miles per hour. So I look at the data on Tuesday night. Voila, it is terrible. It is eye opening terrible for Yohan Makata. He's having a terrible time against pitches. 94 miles per hour or greater. And I had some back and forth with P. Knowles because his hypothesis was that Makata is still hurt and he is plain hurt. And when I zoomed down at that data set, a data set to look at pitches, 90 miles per hour or greater. So below average fastballs to the best fastballs in major league baseball, the data didn't get better for you on I mm-hmm. mean, his whiff rate, against pitches greater than 90 miles per hour before Wednesday's game was at 26.6%. That's a 7.7% increase from last season. So he's whiffing more, he's not making a lot of contact on these pitches, and he's certainly not driving them. Well, that changed on Wednesday because Makata hit a three-run homer off a 93-mile-per-hour fastball. Then he hit a double off a 95-mile-per-hour fastball, and he finished the game collecting five hits with five RBIs, in that blowout victory. Is this game a sign that Mikada might be figuring things out and a possible season turnaround is in the cards for him?
2: I'm hesitant to say yes, just because it seems like his condition fluctuates so much from series to series, basically. like Maybe even game to game. Um, basically, when it comes to Mankada. Yeah, you know, I, I once in a while glance at the Statcast data and just kind of look at the the baseball savant page just to get an idea of, you know, it reminds me of the way we talk about Yasmani Grandal, and it's like if he's not catching up to velocity, that's one thing, but if he's not hitting anything, fast, slow, breaking, uh, straight, off speed, just he's not connecting anything, that either strikes me as like. Uh, you know something physically wrong or just way off like just like a crisis of confidence and given that we have like a you know a couple injuries to point to the oblique to start the season and the quadricep injury that kind of came up but wasn't enough to um you know knock them you know back to the injured list for good to me I've more or less you know given up on the uh advanced data or at least you know not giving up necessarily but just like uh, i don't think it's necessary to look at it to me i'm more using the eye test and just like is he looking lively is is there a pulse on the field in the batter's box like is he just barely following back pitches is he you know looking like he's laboring getting the bat through the zone and in the case of the homer on wednesday where he got the the bat around a 93 on the inner half like it wasn't a great pitch but it was a pitch that's you know, in his worst conditions would have just jammed him or, you know, you know be, best case scenario is like muscling a single over the head of the shortstop uh, the opposite way. Uh, you know, that's a sign where any sign is good. And, and then, you know, taking the outside corner fastball down the line, that was nice to see. Like, you know, the barrel was where it was supposed to be. So, um, you know, and, and then Bonetti and Stone mentioned, you know, just that he looked happier. Like, you are smiling, you know, and it's, you know, I'm... I'm not inclined to draw too big of a conclusion because the White Sox dugout seemed very loose during that game with Jose Abreu building his own uh, lean to in the dugout. <laughs> um, you know, everybody looked very comfortable. So I'm not going to say, you know, maybe it's a bit of a rising tide thing, but he looked good. It's just I'm I'm I want to see that for like a solid week uh, of just uh, turning around okay fastballs and and not getting beat by everything. And then and then I think I'll be more inclined to say like, yeah, he's turning a corner, kind of like with Yasmani Grandal. Like he was uh, before he uh, pulled up lame uh, with the hamstring issue. Now it's a back spasm thing. Um, you know, you look like the barrel was where it had to be. It wasn't really ripping the ball yet. He wasn't getting lift. He wasn't like, you know, hammering 110 mile per hour liners into the seats, but he was more on time. And I think that's a good place to start, even if he's not quite summoning the height of his powers just yet.
1: I understand where you're coming from with the eye test because I'm the same way. But I also need that confirmation bias from the advanced data of are my eyes deceiving me or can, does Yomik can Yomikata not hit a fastball? Like that's why I went to Baseball Savant because it's just yeah. been it's just been bugging me. Like even in the beginning of the the series where. Mikata's just getting beat by high fastballs, and, and he's following them off, but he's not putting them in play. And even in Wednesday's game, the Detroit Tigers threw 13 pitches to Makata. 11 of them were fastballs before the position players decided to throw whatever that they were throwing. So I think the book around Major League Baseball is pretty clear that they are challenging Makata with velocity because a lot of teams don't think he can hit velocity
2: yeah, probably just not overthinking it, just being like, well, oh, just uh, put the pitch calm down and just one uh, one one, one, one. And I don't blame him
1: based yeah. on the the data and again, the eye test, just watching film. You know, Luis Robert doesn't have great fastball numbers, but that I can explain because he's hunting sliders and he's hyper aggressive early in the count. He's not putting himself in a position to take advantage of fastball counts. That is pretty easy to explain. Mm-hmm. Mikata has not been easy to explain. You mentioned Grandal. Grandal's not been easy to explain. I just. Devin want...
2: cheats is another one. Like you know, good, good when example. it comes to hitters like that, yeah, you know, the question I ask is like, what can they hit? Like just you know, you know, what should they crush? Like Abreu early in the season two when his bat looked like whatever reason he just couldn't get the bat through the zone on time. Like it was the same thing. Like. Rolling sliders, uh, floating changeups, fastballs—like he, he was putting everything on the right side, uh, usually out of play uh, when he was, you know, getting contact. So, you know, that, that's kind of the question I start with. And if I can't answer, like I would say, your mean Mercedes is a good example last year of he could hit changeups, he could off-speed, he could hit curveballs and sliders, but yeah, you know, I was trying to figure out like that, that took a, a longer time for the eye test to detect because you know he'd occasionally make contact with the, uh, with a good pitch and show an approach. I kind of got to that because I realized, like, man, he's using his two-strike approach a lot. Like, I like that he had a two-strike swing it shortened it up, but he wasn't quite doing. He was doing that too much. Like, he was he was one O two, one two, an awful uh, amount, and that and that's when I had to go to the numbers and say, like, why is you know, why is he down O two all the time? And then that's when it it turned up that just he couldn't turn around a fastball.
1: You know, speaking of Jose Abreu, Abreu had a huge series against Detroit, mm-hmm. uh, eight for thirteen. <laughs> he had two homers we wanted we need we needed to see home run power from jose breu and he uh certainly provided two homers in the first game with four rbis he had two doubles off of the position players to pad his numbers hey i don't blame him if you're going to throw a position he could have had triples. they could have been triples but
2: <laughs> that, that, that's i think was my favorite part about a Braves, uh uh I guess series you know, besides I would say, okay, first part was the Homer to center field. That was really yes. impressive, especially with the wind blowing in to, to reach the second level of shrubbery and the, the batter's eye. Second favorite thing was, uh, you yeah, those doubles opposition players, like he was, you know, he, he could have gone for triples standing up, and didn't because why bother hurting yourself? But when Jon Mancada came up and dropped singles in, he was busting. He wanted to get you know, Mankata those RBIs. And I like seeing that because I think that was kind of the effort of just, uh, you know, and, and then Mancada got the group hug in the dugout after his homer because I think it was his first in 23 games and just, you know, the, I I think everybody's trying to lift him up. So whether it's, you know, over celebrating a Homer or whether it's, you know, making sure that you don't leave an RBI in the field out of sportsmanship that uh, nobody would really notice. Um, Yeah. I, I, I like seeing that.
1: Yeah. So when we had Monday's podcast and we, we were hoping that we were clamoring for Jose Abreu to hit for more power because Abreu's slash line for the season before the Detroit series, Jim was a 251 batting average, a 351 on base percentage. That's really good. But he was only slugging 408. That's not Jose Abreu. Well, after the Detroit series, mm-hmm. his season slash line is now 272 batting average, a 372 on base percentage, and he's slugging 455. He almost increased his slugging percentage by 50 points in, in three games. So. Jose Abreu's numbers, his season numbers are, are right back on track. So thank you, Detroit. As a matter of fact, that is a, yeah, that's his season high in slugging percentage. Oh, no, I take that back. His season high slugging percentage. Uh, last time he was this high was in a uh, game four of the season where his sluggy was, mm. uh, at 500 since it has not been this high, Since then, so very good series for Jose Abreu, who continues to rake. Someone else that continues to rake, and maybe this is the resurgence we've been waiting for, and the type of hot streak that we were hopeful, Jim, we would see after the White Sox acquired him in a trade for Craig Kimbrell, and that's A.J. Pollock. So A.J. Pollock in his last seven games is 15 for 35. No home runs in his last seven games, but that's a .429 batting average with a .474 on base percentage, and he's sluggied .514. In his last 15 games, A.J. Pollock is 20 for 58, and that is a .345 batting average with a .387 on base percentage and sluggied .466. Danny Mendick is doing the best that he can right now to fill in the void defensively for Tim Anderson, and provide a you know better production bat in the bottom of the lineup. But it's been A.J. Pollock who's been hitting leadoff recently for the White Sox, and I think he's trying to do his best impression of constantly being on base, trying to fill in that void for Tim Anderson, Jim. And I'm wondering, is this the resurgence uh, and the type of play we've been expecting to see from A.J. Pollock?
2: I think it is. Um, you know, and he almost hit a Homer. He, well, he hit the yellow stripe in the left field wall, much to your chagrin, as you try yep. to uh, get that uh, uh WRC plus uh to one oh eight so you can win a bet with flow. Yeah,
1: we should we I should explain that real quick. So back in May when Pollock was really struggling, I made another stake bet. So for our audience members listening to this. So on June thirtieth, if AJ Pollock's season weighted runs created plus is at 108, Beefloaf owes me another steak dinner. I won the last steak dinner bet but when the MLB lockout was gonna end, and I crushed that. Thank you, Rob Manfred. But if AJ Pollock falls short of the one oh eight weighted Rudd's Creative Plus by June thirtieth, I owe him a steak dinner. So let's go AJ He's Pollock at 95 so there you now, go, Jim. Oh, <laughs> yes, let's go. <laughs> Come on, Timo. He was at like 64. He was, he was at like 64 yeah. a couple weeks ago. He's already at 95. Yeah,
2: no, but it, the the contact is good. Like, you know, he's not going to be somebody, I think, who, you know, he can hit homers, but it's not really his game. I think it's like a well-rounded offensive approach. Can uh, He can hit the ball over the fence, but doesn't sell out for it, uh, makes a lot of contact, gets on base, is just a... You know, he's not quite like, you know, I would say on on one of the spectrum is like a Luis Arias who, uh, you know, just you never like seeing up because he, um, you know, never strikes out. You have to get him out by uh, putting the ball in play uh, by and large. And he's getting better and better at finding gaps and and holes in the defense. And then on the other hand, you have like somebody like, uh, I guess Joey Gallo would be the opposite where like he walks and (laughs) doesn't hit anything in play. And you just have to hope that, uh, you know, he, he more or less uh, pops up or gets himself out, otherwise strikes out. But I mean, Pollock's single season high in, is, in homers is 21, partially because he's been hurt, but also just, you know, even when he's you know been healthier, he topped out 20 in Arizona. So he doesn't really, you know, I don't think he's launch angle optimized and, and maybe that's a poor way of putting it because his launch angle is probably fine. It served him well. I think uh, if he were healthy, he'd, everybody, uh, you know, who he's played for would have liked him plenty. Yeah, you know, it would have found him found him hard to move. But just because he's been unavailable, that's why the White Sox have him. So, fortunately, um, he got past the initial uh, injury, the, the the hamstring tweak. Um, you probably could have used a rehab stint. I think that probably you know watching Moncada play through an injury and uh, watching Grandal labor through his post knee surgery recovery, and now watching you know Pollock. I think they've mishandled some injuries early or just sunk too many weeks in guys who weren't quite ready yet or weren't quite on time and hopefully it doesn't hurt him. But I think Pollock looks like the guy they thought they were getting now. Cause I mean, you know, he beat up on the tigers, but he also, as you mentioned had a good series beforehand.
1: Yeah. He had a good series. He gets Dodgers. He had a good series. He gets the tigers uh, and also the Rangers as well. So AJ Pollock, he is hitting the ball You know, there's been some good questions in regards to the White Sox lineup and where would you want AJ Pollock to hit
2: when Tim Anderson returns? Do you have any thoughts about that, Jim? I think, you know, when it comes to right-handed pitching, I don't necessarily mind him betting second. Like just if, if, you know, Robert's struggling and, and, uh, you know, Abreu and Vaughn are threats, but if you want, you know, some action on the base paths and somebody who can maybe let Anderson run a little, he's probably your best bet.
1: No, I like that idea. Just drop everyone down or maybe drop Robert to fifth and have a Bray, you still back cleanup and Vaughn's third. I, I like that. I mean, now the White Sox have options, right? It's a lot easier to make a lineup when people are hitting, uh, than before when, when it's like, well, we got two guys that are above average right now. So let's make a lineup of nine. And, uh, yes. it looks a lot better, uh, recently. So hopefully, the White Sox offense continues its hot streak against the Houston Astros. We'll talk about that series in a moment. Uh, but I believe the streak is now at seven games in a row. The White Sox have scored five or more runs about damn time. And they have greatly helped their run differential with that 13 nothing victory. And, of course, their big series against the Detroit Tigers. On the pitching front, Davis Martin, he understood mm-hmm. the assignment, Jim on Wednesday. So Vince Velasquez leaves in the third inning and then Davis Martin picks up and in 58 pitches, he threw 44 strikes and he got through five at a third innings. Now that is like a lesson Dylan Cease can learn from Davis Martin, <laughs> uh, to go deeper in the game because Davis Martin only allowed three hits, no runs, didn't walk anybody. And he struck out three. So is the dart suddenly the missing swing man or starting pitcher number seven that we have been talking about, the much-needed depth for the White Sox I've been searching for?
2: I think he's been that guy uh, so far. You know, he showed what he needed to show so far. You know, I think um, it's interesting to me that they've used him as the bulk guy because watching his first uh, two starts, like his problem was the first couple innings. Like it took him a while to find... A groove and and, and you know, find his pitch mix, and you know it was you know when they when he backed up Lopez first, and then he backed up Velasquez in this one. I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. They were like almost trying to. It almost seemed like psychological to me, like saying, uh, let's pretend like you're starting in the third inning. Yeah, you know, it's uh, uh the first two innings don't exist. Uh, you've already gotten past them, and now you're in a third, and you're you're fine, and and that's kind of how he's pitched in this bulk role. The one thing I, I will say in, in this outing is that the Tigers did, you know, they hit him hard. I'm looking at his uh, data right now. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight hard hit balls off him. So that's a fair amount, but a lot of them were on the ground, you know, and and the White Sox were positioned well and they uh, defended well, you know, they, they made all the plays. But, you know, when you have a lead, that's three nothing and then five nothing, seven nothing, like was just kind of grown by two every inning. His job is just to make the tigers get him in trouble, make any opponent get him in trouble, and they couldn't. So uh, he had that uh, you know, he had that down, and, and I think you know, a lot of young pitchers um, it, that's basically one of their issues is when they only have to throw strikes, uh, whether it's because they're in uh, you know, low leverage situations for good reasons, like a big lead, or you know, just garbage time trying to get a game over with. Uh, you know, they just try to nibble, make perfect pitches, get strikeouts, not get hits. And, you know, I think in the case of Martin, like even Bennett Sousa showed that too, like in his outing, his last one before he got uh, demoted uh, to Charlotte, you know, he came in and, and Tony Larusa needed an inning from him. And it wasn't a good inning. It was three well-hit drives, two, you know, one warning track, two that were, you know, 350 plus feet and near 100, you know, miles per hour exit velocity, you know, barely got away with something but it's better than watching him you know, get ahead 0-2, fall behind three two have to you know roll over a slider because he's hoping they're guessing fastball like he just he decided to kind of cut the crap more or less and just say oh, let's see if i get in trouble and he didn't and i think when, when it's an offense against like the tigers you can do that uh, i think that's luxury that an offense you know, as you mentioned historically awful uh that's what this provides and it was nice to see martin indulge himself and say like yeah uh yeah, this may not be this easy all the time, or maybe you know, seldom ever. So, may as well, like you know, my job's hard enough as it is. Uh, take the easy outs so when you can get them. Yeah, that's where like for Dylan Cease,
1: he had a good start, struck out eight, went five innings. He improves to ten and zero in his career against the Detroit Tigers. He's very good against Detroit, but again, this bullpen is gassed, and they really could have used like a seven inning start. From Dylan Cease, where I think he's just, he's trying to be too fine, Jim. Like, Dylan Cease is trying to throw the perfect pitch every single time. It was refreshing to see Davis Martin. Now, obviously, Martin's got the run support that he can, you know, challenge all these hitters for Detroit in the strike zone. But he did. He wasn't nibbling. He attacked them. And he goes five and a third innings in 58 pitches, where it takes over 100-plus pitches again for Dylan Cease to get through five innings. So I I was impressed in what Davis Martin did and he understood the assignment. He went as deep as he possibly could, handed the ball off to Jose Ruiz. And, you know, with these, you know, with the bullpen and Vince Velasquez only able to get to the third inning, that could have been another bullpen game. But thanks to Davis Martin, he he helped out the White Sox bullpen in a big way and they didn't need to use Joe Kelly again or Kendall Mm -hmm. Graveman. So good job on Davis Martin's part.
2: And he also fielded his position well too. He uh, you know, covered first a couple times uh, awkwardly in one instance, but made the play and then uh, blocked the liner, uh, You know, recovered it and made an on-target firm throw when he had to and looked comfortable doing it. So he helped himself. So back to the injuries and there's injuries galore for the
1: White Sox. Uh, briefly just chat about this. Kyle Crick is going to the injured list. So that's another bullpen arm going on the IL for the Chicago White Sox. But the big name is Liam Hendricks. He is going to the IL. And he spoke with beat reporters before Wednesday's game. And he made it known that he's had a tear in his UCL since 2008. And he's been managing as far as that particular tear. And he's not so concerned about the forearm strain that he's currently going through. He has admitted this season his elbow is constantly getting more inflamed than usual. So Rick Hahn told the beat reporters that the preliminary estimate is three weeks of rest for Liam Hendricks and then see where he's at before he rejoins the Chicago White Sox. So Liam Hendricks needs some time off uh, and hopefully his elbow uh, reduces as far as that inflammation. We, we've mentioned this multiple times. The bullpen is gas, Jim. Thankfully, Joe Kelly is back. So how do you think Tony the Russa is going to handle the end of games with Liam Hendricks now on the IL uh, to join along with, you know, Kyle Crick. I just mentioned that, but also Aaron Bummer still on the IL.
2: I think, you know, working backwards, I think Graveman is the first choice for the ninth. And we'll see just, you know, I don't think you're going to see six saves in eight games uh, like they did with uh, Hendricks, uh, whether it's Hendricks himself doing it or anybody else. They've been, they seem like they've been cautious with Graveman for one reason or another. So he would be the ninth inning guy. I think Kelly would be the eighth inning guy, especially against lefties. I, I think, um, you know, entering the season, you know, in his recent form, the last three years, he had even splits against lefties and righties. And that's what I think was growing, you know, had me more and more frustrated with Tony La Russa was that, you know, when when it came to handedness and just his, you know, obsession, I don't think it's too strong a word in some cases of just, making sure he had the matchups even when the talent wasn't there. And and, and in the case of like Souza, he had reverse splits. Like lefties hit him harder than righties. Uh, lefties were not phased by him, and he kept getting these important assignments against lefties. So with Souza not there and Kelly back, like Kelly seems like the best call for those situations. Like an eighth inning with two lefties out of three coming up. Give the ball to Kelly. I like that. Then I think, you know, before Kelly, seventh inning or against righties, like it seems like Lopez is the guy. Like he seems like he's been getting the ball more in those situations. And uh, he, you know, hasn't really given a reason to not give him the ball. I think when you look at the other relievers, uh, Crick being out, uh, Foster being rocky lately, uh, Ruiz got an inning today as a confidence booster because he's had a really rough time. Uh, Jimmy Lambert's thrown well a couple outings, but, you know, he's not quite there yet you know, Tanner Banks has thrown well a couple outings. He's not quite there yet. So it does seem like this is an opportunity for Lopez to distinguish himself because when it comes to the other arms in the bullpen, uh, they have other guys who can go two plus innings. It's really, a, they're, they're lacking that um, key inning in the seventh or so. And I think Lopez can be that guy.
1: Well, hopefully, those three get an opportunity to close out a victory this upcoming weekend as the Chicago White Sox head their way to houston and we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors but coming up next we preview the white Sox series against the houston astros on the Sox machine podcast
0: we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to indeed data
1: Welcome back to the Sox machine podcast. The next series for the Chicago White Sox are those pesky Houston Astros who really dominated the White Sox last year in the regular season in Houston. And of course the Astros won games one and two at home in Houston against the White Sox in the American League division series. I think there's no mistake. The White Sox are entering this weekend with a little bit chip of their shoulder So let's see in how they play these three games against the Astros. There may be some revenge seeking here, or at least proving that the White Sox are truly on a path to get themselves back into contention because all the good vibes from Detroit can quickly evaporate if the White Sox continue to play poorly in Houston like they did in 2021. The Astros are 39-24 this season. They're first place in the American League West. They have the second-best record in the American League behind the New York Yankees. They've won the last two games. However, in the last 10 games for the Astros, they've just been 500. They are 5-5, and and at home, they are 16-10. Your pitching problems for this series, please note on the broadcast. Friday at 7-10 p.m. Central Time, this is an Apple TV broadcast. It's Lucas Giolito against Framber Valdez. On Saturday, this is a 3.10 p.m. Central time start. And it's on NBC Sports Chicago. It's Johnny Cueto against old nemesis Justin Verlander. And then on Sunday at 6.10 p.m. Central time, this is on ESPN Sunday Night Baseball. It's to be determined for the White Sox against Christian Javier for the Astros. Jim, as I mentioned in the intro, the White Sox last won in Houston back in May of 2019. Lucas Giolito pitched a complete game shutout in their last victory at Houston. They'll need big starting pitching performances to win any of these games this upcoming weekend. Do you think the White Sox can at least win one game?
2: I think so. I'm going to put in some positive vibes here. Um, They've hit lefties well. Verlander, I think, is going to pose a... I mean, he's posed a challenge to everybody, but we've seen the White Sox take better at-bats against even tough pitching. Like, I'm thinking like the Martin Perez game. Like, they just ran him ragged in a way that Perez hadn't seen this year. I think they could do the same thing against a guy like Valdez. So, I like some of the matchups, but I think, you know, when it comes to that, yeah, the Friday matchup with Valdez, I think it's really like Giolito. Like, the third time through is a big problem for him. And... We've seen with Tony La Russa that he really likes his starting pitchers going five now. He does not like the early hook, whether it's the you know, feeling like he's leaving the mim to qualify for a win, even though nobody really cares about that anymore, or just really concerned about the bullpen, you know, what kind of workload it's taking on. Uh, Giolito seems like he's really vulnerable to just having starts get away from him. So either I'm hoping he gets a start to where, you know, he leaves little doubt about how he's cruising through the lineup and, and and cutting through them the third time. Uh or, you know, conversely, like the bullpen is rested enough between the velasquez Martin, you know, Ruiz game plus an off day, buying him some time, and then, you know, just having the luxury of like, okay, we have a pretty rested bullpen, we have a win in our grasp. We're not going to let Giolito lose this game for us. Either way, it'd be nice to see um, you know, if Giolito doesn't pick it up himself, just have Tony Larusa there to not let him twist. I think LaRusse is going to
1: let Giolito twist. <laughs> just the, yeah. just the way that he's been handling Giolito these last two seasons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The only way out is through. That is true. But I have a feeling that Giolito is going to be one of these White Sox players, Jim, that really wants this game. Because he feels that he pitched poorly in the divisional series or he didn't pitch well enough to help them win game two. And then he watches his friend during the world series, Max Fried, and he's in Houston watching his start. And I remember the comments that G had after the game. It was very along the lines of how come I couldn't do that. What does he have that I don't? Right. So I, I'm one, I'm paying close attention to this start. Lucas G again, He's had past experiences, good experiences in Houston. He's had bad experiences in Houston. I'm wondering if he takes this start personally, as a way as we've seen Giolito step up in big moments. Maybe he makes this a big moment for himself and for the team to get them back to 500. And hopefully, he pitches well Friday night. The Sunday game, it could be Michael Kopech, depending on how his knee is acting up. Rick Kahn mentioned to the reporters that they drained fluid from the knee and they are hopeful that Michael Kopech can make this start on Sunday. Are you hopeful, Jim? Are you optimistic that Michael Kopech will be making that start on Sunday?
2: I would like to be hopeful, but I think, you know, I don't think the start on Sunday is as important as him being able to mark, make starts regularly down the line. So I'm hoping they don't rush him into something they'd you know, they shouldn't. Um, and, and this is what I think is a benefit of this Detroit series is one, um, you know, having that nice, you know, day off for the, the, the key parts of the bullpen before another off day to have them, you know, get some rest for a big series, but also just, um, you know, easing the, uh, threat level of the team, like just, uh, you know, not being on high alert for, um, the season just sliding down the drain uh, because nobody can put a stop to this. Like we saw, you know, Lynn couldn't quite put a stop to this, but the talent of the team went out. And then we saw Cease do better. And then we saw uh, Martin and Velasquez doing best. So I, I think, you know, with that, with those three games in hand and an off day, I'm hoping that there'll be more, you know, like, When I saw the idea that Kopech could start this weekend, even though we just, you know, last time we saw him, he was slamming the ball down in frustration. Couldn't even throw a warm-up pitch. Like, that made it seem like we need Kopech to start because this season's getting out of hand fast. And I didn't think that helped. So, here's hoping that this series against Detroit uh, makes everybody a little bit more... uh, clear-headed and making decisions because they are actually what's best for the team and the player versus what's best for the team on the given day in order to put a w in the win column and maybe like improve the run differential and the last 10 numbers and everything else in the standings that look so grim um but but given the white Sox problems with uh, leg injuries recurring i'm you know I need them to show me, I suppose. Same thing with, like, Mankata and Anderson and everybody else. Everybody who's had a leg injury, um, I need to see that they can do it. So, and, and I'm not penciling them in for starts, like, in mid-July until they can, you know, get through June in relative working order. That's why I like Joe Kelly's uh, outing was so important because he, he looked great before his hamstring injury. And then with all the hamstring injuries, the White Sox leading the league in uh, leg injuries last two years, like, I was afraid he'd be uh, there for a couple outings and then go right back in the IL. And he might do that, but at least for the time being, he looked like he was fully healthy in the game he pitched. Yeah,
1: and then after that Sunday night baseball game, the White Sox play on Monday at home against the Toronto Blue Jays. So it's going to be a late night, early morning for the White Sox coming home from Houston. And they have a turnaround playing at home. Three games against the Blue Jays Monday through Wednesday, and then the four-game weekend series against the Baltimore Orioles. Again, the White Sox do not have another off day for two weeks. They're off today, this Thursday. Then they don't have their next off day is two weeks from today. So the White Sox do have to play this carefully, especially with Michael Kopek. If Kopek cannot go on Sunday, if he needs an extra day or two of rest, Lance Lynn will be in line to make that start. For the White Sox and we know the terrible history that Lance Lynn has against the Houston Astros hitters. The Astros hitters love to hit Lance Lynn, uh, but maybe that's also an opportunity for Lynn to try to have a bounce back game for himself because he wasn't all that sharp against Detroit in the first game as he allowed 10 hits and three runs as he got into the fifth inning, but he couldn't get past the fifth inning in his season debut. Speaking of Houston's offense, and, and I'm not trying to be blasphemous here, Jim, mm-hmm. but I'm looking at Jordan Alvarez, and Alvarez just signed that big contract, over $100 million over the next five years, and he's continuing to mash. He's got 17 home runs this year. He's got 45 RBIs. He's hitting three twelve with a four oh seven on base percentage, and he's slugging six twenty. The way that Jordan Alvarez is hitting for the Astros is what I thought Aloy Jimenez could hit for the White Sox. And I'm a bit jealous of the Houston Astros that they're getting this type of offensive production because I, I really do believe and I still believe that Aloy Jimenez could hit at this level. And, mm-hmm. and that's where I'm just jealous is that I'm seeing this come into play, but it's not Aloy Jimenez doing this for the White Sox, it's Jordan Alvarez doing it for the Astros.
2: Yeah, the average and slugging are there for what we thought was like the, I I guess, not quite best case scenario for Jimenez, but like 80th percentile uh, outcome for Jimenez. I I don't see Jimenez ever having an OBP that starts with a four. I think that's what separates him. But yeah, it's that kind of impact. And uh, it's definitely game changing. Like that's the kind of... uh, it reminds me of, I guess, what Vlad Guerrero was last year. Um, he's not quite there this year. I think he's improving, but not. He's hitting too many balls in the ground. But it's the same. Just you know, 17 homers. Uh, just <laughs> it's. Uh, you know somebody to plan around the the don't let them beat you guy because really like Houston has a good lineup and it's a you know Michael Brantley is you know still a threat Kyle Tucker is good you know Altuve is good like you know they have guys who can hit but Alvarez is definitely that guy and and when you've separated yourself that much in a lineup that's pretty good up and down i, I think that speaks volumes about just exactly what he's doing at the plate right now and
1: another name that white Sox fans are going to see if you don't watch a lot of Houston Astros baseball Jeremy Pena, the rookie who took over for Carlos Correa at shortstop. And I think he's a front runner to be American League Rookie of the Year. Uh, He has been fantastic for the Houston Astros. His season OPS is over 800s at 804. He's got nine homers and 27 RBIs. We'll see how much uh, uh, that he'll play against the White Sox this weekend. I know the Astros have been giving him some days off, but he's he's been very... He's
2: actually uh, out with a thumb injury.
1: He's out with a thumb injury. So is he out for this entire series? Yeah, he's on the injured list. Oh, that is kind of a benefit for the White Sox then. And also kind of a downer because if you haven't seen Jeremy Pena play, I I do recommend it because he is making the Houston Astros look really smart right now, Jim, of not re-signing Carlos Correa. And and Carlos Correa is still an all-world shortstop, but it's like they, again, the Astros continue to excel in player development and they have maybe developed another all-star caliber shortstop to replace Carlos Correa. One surprise is Alex Bregman. Now Bregman is walking. He's got 36 walks this season at 33 strikeouts but he's only got six homers. He's got 14 doubles which is pretty good but when you add it up for 61 games Bregman's hitting only 214 with a three thirty one on base percentage and he's lucky just three sixty-three. I'm really surprised on his offensive output to start this season, Jim, and I'm really hoping that he does not wake up this weekend.
2: <laughs> yeah, I've seen him it seems like he's been fighting with the swing a little bit. Um, you know, he's just been mm-hmm. trying to tap in the power and yeah, it's uh Altuve's, you know, still Altuve. Like he's just been yeah. He seems like you know, when it comes to the whole uh, Astro scandal. Like he's somebody who uh, managed to develop a callus to it and just you know not mind being the villain. Uh, to, to I think everybody's chagrin, but yeah, you know, Bregman just hasn't quite been able to capture that. But I, I think the the thing about the lineup is just even walks are so punishing with this lineup, uh, especially depending on like if they're in front of Alvarez or if they're in front of Brantley because Brantley is you know doing his thing right now. And I think uh, when it comes to just you know watching Gialito, um labor through some innings and, and uh, the way they've uh, you know turn the lineup over with walks and then paid for it at the top of the order, I think that's going to be pretty much paramount for uh, the pitching staff because while the Astros offense is good, it's a bit uneven. So they just have to make sure that they don't uh, create unnecessary base runners, um, you know, with the bottom of the order, with just overlooking, you know, number eight, number nine, because they're thinking about number one.
1: Yeah, that's a good point, Jim. It's a good point. And with Pena you out, I mean, this lineup, the guys that scare you the most Alvarez, Altuve, Tucker, and Brantley. We know that they could do damage against the White Sox because they have been doing damage against the White Sox the last two years. But Alex Bregman is really struggling. There's been a lot of conversation about Martin Maldonado. The Astros are happy with his defense, even though he's not hitting very well. Uh, And it sounds like the Astros are not interested in Wilson Contreras, or at least in that sweepstakes, to acquire the Chicago Cubs catcher. So, again, it's it's these four guys that the White Sox pitchers are going to have to navigate through, or as you also pointed out, Jim, don't have base runners on for Alvarez, <laughs> Altuve, Tucker, and Brantley. That's uh, easier said than done, but hopefully the White Sox do get some outstanding starting pitching this weekend. They're going to need it uh, if they're going to win a game or even this series against the Houston Astros. I I am hopeful that they do win at least one game out of this weekend gym because to have this great series in detroit and have some good vibes going into an off day and then immediately get swept by the houston astros and now you're back to four games below 500 again after you kind of climbed up a little out of this hole it can be a little disheartening as you come home for three games against the toronto blue Jays. so it's a tough six game swing for the white Sox: three against the astros three against the blue jays but again if they're going to play themselves into contention they got to start stacking wins and they got to start stacking wins against some of the best teams in baseball. But that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. Greatly appreciate it. If you just discovered the Sox Machine Podcast, you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts such as Spotify and Apple Music. And whether you've been a longtime lurker of Sox Machine or you're brand spanking new to Sox Machine, think about helping support us at patreon.com slash socks machine our patreon supporters they get more they get exclusive content from us they also get ad-free versions of the podcast and website and when we have new socks machine swag they are the first ones to acquire it and again if you enjoy our work and you want more sign up at patreon.com slash socks machine where monthly plans start at two dollars a month and you can save with an annual subscription But thank you so much for listening to the Sox Machine podcast, as the podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening.